It's our vision at Scarlet City is to be a people joining God's story of transformation and renewal. And uh, in living out that vision, the past uh, few weeks, we've been in a sermon series called Love Your Neighbor, considering uh, Jesus' call uh, to love those in need. And that is a call that is all throughout the Bible. It is central to who God is calling us to be as his people. From the Old Testament into the New Testament, the love of the other is absolutely central to the heart of God. And that is most beautifully and powerfully expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news of God in his son, Jesus Christ, giving up power, giving his life on the cross for his enemies, for the other, of which everyone in this room was. And then raising again and launching a multicultural, multi-ethnic movement, the church. And all of us here this morning are participants and are invited into that work. So it is absolutely central to who God is and what God is about in the church. And so last week we invited you, we talked about entering into a season of considering what does it look like for you personally and then also for us corporately as a community, what does it look like for God in this season to call us to love those cross-culturally? And so toward that end, we want to take this morning an opportunity. This morning is, is different, as Jacob mentioned earlier. Uh, we're going to have a panel. And here's what I want to invite all of us into as, as we have this very important discussion on race, racism, and the church's response. I want to invite all of us to consider one of the implications of the gospel is it brings humility and a posture of listening. And for us as a church to take that posture this morning. Uh, anytime you have conversations around race and culture, there should be some challenging components. And there might be some things that are shared and heard that might strike a chord in you and there might be a part of you that just maybe wants to dismiss it or wants to explain it away. I want to invite you to resist that temptation, to take a posture of humility and engagement and listening to seek understanding. And so I want to invite our panelists up, and I'll introduce them as, as uh, they come on up so you guys can join us. Yeah, yeah any, any response good? Well, one, I want to start by thanking each of you. Uh, each of you are a friend of mine, and you've been a mentor to me in these matters. And I would not be where I am. Our church would not be where it is if it wasn't for people like you uh, who were vulnerable and uh, crossed barriers to share and speak into my life. And so I'm honored by you. I'm thankful for each of you personally and the role you've played in my life. And I'm still at the beginning. I'm a learner uh, seeking to uh, explore what does it look like to engage in these matters. So I want to thank you, each of you personally. Um, and uh, for those who don't know, and I'm sorry that we're so low, we're not on the platform. I know it could be hard for you to See, um, resist the temptation to stand up. You'll probably make it harder for the people behind you, um, but we'll, we'll make do with what we have. Um, I want to introduce our panelists. Uh, we have Robert Caldwell, and Robert has experience as a pastor and a community development leader. And as for all our panelists, if we listed all the things that they were involved in and have started, we would be here all morning. Um, but Robert uh, recently has been honored for his faith-based partnerships initiative, which was a focus on holistic solutions to the problems facing urban communities. He was recognized with the Governor's Award for Excellence in Public Service in the state of Ohio, and he's presently the founder and CEO of Answers Poverty, and he's married four kids, grown, out of the house, on three, almost, yeah, a new season, yeah, and uh we have here Dr. Corey Edwards, and um, Dr. Edwards is a professor of sociology at The Ohio State University. Yeah, The. Uh, she focuses on her research on gender, race, and class, and she's published several articles and books 
uh, notably The Elusive Dream, The Power of Race in Interracial Churches, and she's presently working on books titled, and I look forward to hearing more about this, uh, your, your work coming out, Pastors in Politics in a Battleground State, and Kingpins and Social Mobilization, Why Leaders Matter. And Dr. Edwards has two of her two, two daughters here, so it's good to have you guys. And uh, we have Dr. and Pastor Kevin Dudley. Kevin was born in Detroit, grew up in Atlanta, and has very diverse experiences from uh, being a police officer, right, back in the day, uh, to a professor at Trinity in Ashland, to a pastor. So, wide range of experience. And, um, pa- and uh, Kevin is presently a pastor in Gehanna and uh, is involved in a network, made, the Made to Flourish Network, which seeks to equip people on bringing their faith into the workplace. He's also in, a part of the Catalyst team, which is a community of um, uh, leaders in Columbus seeking to start a gospel movement in the city. And uh, he's married to Gail, and they have two children out of the house. So we can, you can pray for uh, Dr. Edwards and I, you know, that we launch them successfully like, like you have. Well, thanks again for joining us, guys, and uh, really excited uh, for this conversation. And kind of as we're starting off, uh, first question, being in a church setting at a worship gathering, and each of you are passionate about your faith, um, I want to hear, and would love for you guys to share how the gospel shapes how you engage this issue. And especially, this is a conversation that is happening in society as a whole, what are, some, what are some of the unique ways that the church can engage in the process? Corey, we can start with you if that's okay. Yeah, um, so as uh, Pastor Jay already mentioned, you know, I'm in academia, and uh, diversity and issues of race, these aren't things that are foreign to us. We talk about this. Um, but those of us who are in the body, we have something that's so much more precious than what people in the world have. Um, people talk about systemic racism, so that's not new. Uh, so if you're talking about that, people in the world talk about that. If you're talking about injustice and protesting, not new. People in the world talk about that. But what they don't talk about is submitting to the Almighty God and doing things in the way that the Lord calls us to do it. Um, we are blessed to have the Holy Spirit. We are blessed gosh, to be able to hear the Lord guide us. This is a very tricky, difficult terrain. And yet sometimes we use the tools of the world to deal with it rather than what the Lord has given us. So I'd say that's one of the main, most important things we can remember. We are the children of the Almighty God who are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, who are called to listen to obey, to hear, to be patient, to wait. These are disciplines that are not just about racial reconciliation. These are disciplines of what we're called to be as just believers generally. Mm. But somehow we jump into doing this and we forget that we are called to be children of God and then we're just racial justice people. Now God is a God of justice. I believe we know that. But he also calls us to live that out as he would have us do that. So that's how we are different from the world. And don't, we cannot forget that. This will fail over and over and over and over and over again. But we have the Almighty God. Uh, we are also called to be one. There's nobody talking about being one out there. They're talking about raising their fists and being angry and, or dealing with issues of injustice, and I love it. I love my liberal friends who are far left, and many of you may be far left and have friends that are like that. I love it. I sit with them. I talk with them. I love it. Yet, I also know that these mechanisms of the world will fail if you're trying to topple a structure of the world. So I would say that those are the two, some of the two things that I would encourage us as believers to do, to know that we are believers, called by the Almighty God, to hear the Holy Spirit, to trust and follow. Robert, what about for you? What are some ways that faith has shaped your engagement? Well, when I, uh, well, as, particularly as it pertains to this topic, when I think about um, the gospel, I think about the role of the church 
in addressing issues like this. So when it comes to our faith, uh, how we choose to live our faith out is really the issue at hand. And I, I, we have a lot of ways to think about what the church is and what the church is supposed to be about and what the church is supposed to do um, that we've all inherited. We've inherited a structure of worship gatherings and preaching and teaching and a concentration uh, and focus that's kind of in the four walls of the church. And so, um, you know, we've, we've gotten that part of the way we're supposed to live relatively right. But how do we then live out in the world? Like, what does it mean to take your faith? Um, how do you live out the gospel in the context that you live and work and play in? And the thing that I have uh, had a fairly acute understanding about right from the very beginning, I'm 33 years now following the Lord, and from the beginning, I was confused about what it meant to be a Christian if I couldn't go to church on Sunday morning or didn't have the Bible at my disposal or something like that. So how do you live that life? Because I spent most of my time, I don't know about you all, but I spend most of my time not being in a church building listening to preaching or singing songs. I mean, is anybody else like that? I mean, okay. So most of my time is spent living in the world with folks who may or may not have a perspective on God or a belief in scripture or any of that. So how do you represent the gospel? How do you live out your faith out there in the world? And so for me, and the journey of my life has been, how do I do that in the context of the world that I'm living in today and the issues that I have to grapple with? Well, this particular issue for me and my generation is an issue that um, you know has created a, a, a lot of wounds, a lot of hurt, a lot of damage. And as Corey said, I mean, we have to recognize that trying to take this issue on with the tools of the world, um, we're, we're not going to be successful. We, just, we, we can't overthrow the government or overthrow some of these systems in some sort of bloody rebellion in that regard. We have to recognize that it's the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit at work in us and allowing him to guide us and, and position us where we can have influence on the hearts and minds of people um, and then uh, that influence over time could slowly begin to address some of these more explicit concerns that we want to grapple with. And so I'll say more in other questions, but the way I think about it is how do we live this life? I mean, if showing up at church on Sunday morning, there's worse things to do. Believe me, I understand that. That's not a problem. There's worse things you can do on a Sunday morning than go to church. But if it does not, if your faith is not having some impact in the world in which you live, then it's kind of meaningless in my opinion. So, Kevin, what about for you? <clears throat> well, I am uh, likewise grateful for the opportunity to hang out with you all for a minute. Um, I uh, think about some of my own personal core values, and one of those core values is freedom a deeper freedom than what you find in the Constitution, but that which is given by the Lord Jesus Christ, which um, allows me, affords me the opportunity to be very present with all different kinds of people. One of the things I'm, I'm finding in our contemporary culture is that while Christ has set us free, so many people are captive to their culture uh, as opposed to living into that freedom. And we can oftentimes dress up our Christianity in cultural garb, and we're blind to the things that we're actually captive to. And so one of the resources that I hope we as believers would gravitate towards is that idea of freedom, that we don't have to be captive to any of these things that are swirling around uh, in our world today. The flip side of that for me is that with that freedom comes tremendous cost. And we in the body of Christ, it seems, have forgotten what it means to uh, pay the cost. Now, obviously, salvation given to us is free. 
but how we actually live that out uh, demands our entire lives. And I find that so many people who say they have received salvation, they say they are uh, people of faith, have not taken that seriously enough to actually follow the one they say they believe in, which means laying down your life. And so what it means is we're protecting our turf, uh, guarding our territory, uh, holding on to our stuff, uh, afraid to lose anything. Uh, I, I think we as the church have to do better than that. If we're truly free, then we have to be willing to pay the cost. As I think even as Christians wanting to engage in these issues, uh, one of the things I've found is there's often a temptation to just talk about action in the future mm -hmm. and a lack of willingness to understand the past and how that shapes where we are today. Um, Robert, I wonder if you can speak to maybe some of that of why, and, and others, chime in as well, uh, why history matters and understanding. I mean, a lot of us, are under, our perspective is relegated to a few topics in a history lesson. It seems like the past, but there's a lack often of majority culture understanding of how the past shapes we, where we are today. Can you share a little bit about why understanding the history shapes where we are? Who's the young man who gave the lament? Okay. Um, I really appreciated that, but I, I'm going to, in the same sort of spirit of the relationship that he referenced in the lament, how many of you are married in this room? Everybody who's married, raise your hand. Okay. So everybody who's married. All right. Um, husbands, I'm talking to you now, just to sort of give an illustration to answer the question. How many of you husbands have done something that really pisses your wife off. Raise your hand if that's the case. Okay. All right. So, how many of you have said, well, I did that yesterday, or I did that last week. Why are we still dealing with that? Why are we, like, why is that still an issue? You know? Can we just move on? Can we just go to the next thing or whatever? How, how, how's that gone for you when you've tried <laughs> to just move on beyond that thing? Okay, so as an illustration uh, to answer the question, I mean, the, the reality is that once you've hurt someone by your behavior or choice, either on purpose with malice and intent or just inadvertently, you know, you didn't do it on purpose, but somehow it created a wound or did some damage or did something. Well, you can't get past that. You can't just like ignore that and decide that, well, that happened back then and now can't we just move on because it, it should be over. Or maybe you may have said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that, or forgive me. But the wound is still there, the hurt is still there, the, the consequence of, or the impact, rather, of that behavior is still there. Well, that's the reality. I mean, we didn't just arbitrarily get to this point in time and have the circumstances be the way they are. Um, and so there are things, there are choices that were made by people in power at the beginning of our country um, that have led to the inequity, um, the demonization of a particular group of people, uh, the, um, the consequences economically that people who trapped in poverty, who are people of color who are trapped in poverty, uh, the consequences of you know, racism and all that. Those things, those decisions were made way back when, and they have had an impact on this society for the 400 plus years that all of that's been going on. So, to become aware of it is an important first step, but to begin to sort of dismantle it or deconstruct it, that's what really has to happen. We have to change our behavior. We are all living under the influence of those choices that have created problems and tension uh, in our society today. We are still living, and if we aren't aware, just like going back to the husband-wife illustration, if you've been married for a while, you realize that there are behaviors that you brought into your relationship 
as a single person before you were married, behaviors that perhaps were um, inculcated because of the family that you grew up in or whatever, but those behaviors that you brought into the relationship that are creating a problem for your spouse, if you're going to be married and have a successful relationship, you have to address those behaviors. You're gonna to have to change some things. And so that's why the history is important. We have to understand how do we get to this place? What is the contribution that I'm making in my behavior, attitude, whatever? Um, and how do I change those things so that we, we can actually heal and get past um, the circumstances that we're in? Yeah, I think um, it's a really important question, and I like how you're building on that, and I appreciated the laments as well. Um, I think that um, history repeats itself, and the reason why it repeats itself is we don't quite get how people made choices or how groups of people made choices back in the day. We presume that there must have been something fundamentally different about them to have allowed them to, for example, affirm slavery. There must have been something really different about those people back then to have allowed them to be okay with the genocide of American Indians. There must have been something really bad and evil about those people during Jim Crow to have allowed them to just affirm um, formal segregation. There must have been something about them. And yet, actually, there wasn't anything particularly interesting or different about them. They were just living their lives trying to make it, trying to do. They were comfortable. It wasn't affecting them. They saw it on the news, maybe they heard about it, but they didn't do anything. And I think that we have to look at history and be very honest about recognizing that everybody then, they were just human beings, just as we are just human beings. Um, I was just, in, I was just uh, in a conversation with a group of people, and, and I, I had to suggest other leaders, actually, and I had to suggest uh, a book to read, which is by Martin Luther King on why we can't wait. Because, see, we think that everybody just had a very concrete decision. Either, you know, you had to know that Jim Crow segregation was wrong, and you just chose not to do anything about it because you were just wrong and evil, or you got it and you fought. But that's actually not what was going on. Martin Luther King was being told by his peers, white peers, pastors, to say, you know what, that's a bit much. Um, I don't know if that's the way to go about living out the gospel. Um, shouldn't we, is that really what Christ would do? And he had to say, no, this is not the gospel. And, I, and when, I, when I think about that, when I read uh, something from Frederick, Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman or Martin Luther King, I can't help but think I'm hearing, I could have swore I just heard that today. Why, 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 why are you, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit and I hope you don't mind, but why, why the Black Lives Matter movement? Isn't that a bit much? Is that how Christ would go about it? Why are we, con I don't know. You see, we, we think that we're not living out, we're actually living out history right now. They had hard choices and we have hard choices today. And we think that maybe in 30, 40 years, generations ahead of us are gonna look back and they're gonna say, that was so obvious. How could they possibly not deal with that? What are we going to say? Can I ask a question for you? Uh, speaking of today and some of we, the protests, Black Lives Matter, kneeling for national anthem at a sporting event, um, Kevin, how do you respond, and I'd love for others to share too, how do you respond when people respond to that with, well, don't all lives matter? And you're, you're being uh, anti-American for kneeling at a national anthem. Uh, what maybe even racial bias is intrinsic in those kind of responses? How do you respond to that? And what is 
that reveal about society as a whole? We live with issues of power uh, that are being played out constantly. And those who either stand in places of power or benefit from the privilege and power uh, that is in place are often blinded to what that means and how that adversely uh, affects the lives of others. You know, it's, it's easy to say, get over it, it's okay when you're not affected by it. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, you don't have to deal with it. You don't have to think about it. Um, and it's exacerbated because even when persons resist uh, issues of domination, issues of subjugation, um, to respond, to say, you know, you, you need to just get in line, you need to obey, you need to submit. Um, you know, what recourse does one have in that circumstance? Years ago, and you'll will remember this, um, Latrell Sprewell was on the basketball court and uh, ended up choking his coach, P.J. Carlissimo. Anybody remember that incident? And everybody was up in arms. How could this happen? How could this pro basketball player uh, try to strangle his coach? And I read a column in uh, the Washington Post by William Raspberry, and he raised the question of why this isn't happening more often. Uh, Why aren't persons of color uh, even more Uh, in different places of of acting that out in some other ways because of that which has caused anger, that which has caused subjugation, uh, persons who are constantly under the thumb. It's amazing that we haven't had uh, more resistance and more rebellion. So when persons decide to be civil, uh, and by the way, civility is usually a code word for uh, uh, those who want people to act right, uh, although it doesn't apply across the board sometimes. Why can't they be civil? Well, this is civil disobedience. This is standing up against uh, the powers that be, standing up against the ways in which people have been oppressed, people have been wounded. Um, How else should they respond, Mm. right? And so in my mind, I think we need to support all of those efforts to uh, peaceful demonstration of ways of standing against injustice that do not cause harm. Uh, You know, it's amazing to me how it offended so many people that uh, athletes would have the nerve, the audacity, the unmitigated goal to take a knee during the pledge. Really? I mean, what did that take away from uh, uh, anybody else in, in them doing that? So in my mind, I think there have to be ways in which persons can protest, can resist in reasonable, uh, by reasonable means. If there are no other places of recourse that they would have. I'd be curious, uh, maybe, uh, one of you can speak to often there's the desire for this colorblindness of you know we're all children of God um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream was that we wouldn't see color and now it seems like talk of race uh, highlights the differences how can that idea of colorblindness actually do damage Robert or Corey? Well, the first thing um, that I think someone who is able to think a little more objectively about the term colorblindness, particularly in America um, at this point in time, should realize how ridiculous that really sounds. Um, First off, it's impossible. We are not psychologically designed to be able to um, not see the differences between people. I mean, it's not even just about color. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which we categorize 
people that we interact with. Uh, we don't see anybody. We just don't live our lives. It's impossible for us to have some sort of equality in our perceptions of people. So first that. So there's the, you know, it's just by definition, it's fundamentally impossible to do that. But the way that's been constructed in our um, society um, that makes it so detrimental to any um, discussion um, to try to overcome or address racism is because people um, have been influenced, again, by the way our culture has evolved and the idea that um, we think racism just sort of rests in the perceptions of us as individuals. Well, without unpacking this too much in too much time, you know, that's, the, that, that's a byproduct of the Enlightenment, um, which has shaped our thinking in our society. And so the idea that um, it rests in me and my perception, so I don't see race or I don't see color or I don't harbor this animus or hatred towards somebody who's different personally, and we've got laws now on the books that says, you know, we can't discriminate against people, we shouldn't do that, all of that. And so when you kind of um, take all of that into consideration and having this, how, how it impacts the way we think, we think that it just, it ends, um, it begins and ends inside of our own head and our own heart. Like, so if I don't, if I, if I convince myself that I'm not affected by someone's color, I don't look at somebody in that way. Well, again, like I said, it's not true, but it doesn't take into consideration all of the other things that are already in place that have structured our society completely based upon the race of people. I mean, you have benefits, you have resources, you have opportunities that were um, with intent and with malice um, denied a group of people in this society. And it was only because of the color of their skin. It had nothing, else, it had nothing to do with any else that's the reality so you when you think it's only about how you perceive so I'm colorblind I don't see color and that's the thing that you say to yourself you necessarily don't take into consideration the reality of all the structural things all the other social things that are going on in society that are based upon color that are based upon racism that we now inherit and have to deal with so. that's good if I can chime in too, it, it, in our society, we have established normative standards and everything that veers away from that normative standard, we say is extra. I, I teach theology in seminary. And whenever I'm talking about Tillich and Niebuhr and Barth and all those German theologians, it's just theology. But when I talk about Jim Cohn uh, Dwight Hopkins, it's now black theology. It's no longer just theology, right? Because we assess a normative standard on one hand and in, then anything that veers from that is something extra or something different. And often we attach value to that. So it's less than what the normative standard is. So we think about black and brown people in this country and we talk about people of color, which is based off the normative standard of just people. So when we talk people, we're normally talking about white people and everything else veers off from that normative standard. Why don't we talk about black and brown people as people and others as melanin deficient people? <laughs> because our normative standard is such that we establish something and that becomes the measure by which we look at everything else around us. We can go down the list and talk about music and everything in culture. Think about how our assumptions have already framed what the normative standard is. And anything else that's different than that must be less than or at worst case scenario, wrong we need to correct that understanding of how we understand norms. I'm good. Thinking about action, uh, we talked about faith shaping how we live and even as 
congregations wanting to pursue multi-ethnic vision and diversity. Corey, one of the things that we've talked about and you've shared is that diversity um, pursued in the wrong way can actually perpetuate the problem. Yeah. I wonder if you could speak to, and, and others chime in, what are some of the challenges in pursuing multi-ethnic living and community, and maybe even some of the mistakes that well-intentioned people can make? Yeah, um, so you know, I, I have the privilege of um, doing a lot of work um, a research on racial and ethnic diversity in churches, and um, been heading a study, the national national study on pastors of multiracial churches, and um, you know, one of the biggest challenges or problems is in fact the goal being diversity. I know that sounds like, well, what do you mean? Um, but I, I don't know of anywhere in the in the gospel where it actually says where God says this is I want you I'm calling you to be diverse. It's not to say that we ought not to be diverse. We ought to be, because God is calling us all, as Pastor Jay mentioned, to be a part of the body. Everyone is called to be a part of the body. Thus, that implies diversity. But God is a God of justice. God is a God where we are all, we are all to be one in Christ. God is a God who says that we are all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. And so what can happen is we can run headlong into being diverse and miss the gospel. We're diverse, but we're not living out the gospel. And so what happens is we end up replicating a space where you have people who are from different backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, and yet somehow you bring in, because you've used the tools of the world to create that space. And, I'll, and I will say this, and I, and I say this when I speak, is that I can give multiracial church leaders, multiracial church pastors, um, steps on how to be diverse, and it'll work. It'll work. Um, but it does not, by any means, lead you to the gospel, not necessarily. Everybody can be here, you can have an equal mix of people, and yet it could be an unjust, painful, um, non-egalitarian space where, as Pastor Kevin was saying, where certain religious expressions are normative and others are questioned, where certain theological perspectives are normative and others are questioned, where certain ways of dress are normative and others are, mm. and the thing that happens is many times what believers do, sadly, is we draw upon scriptures and we draw upon them in an inappropriate way to justify our way of doing and being. But it's not, it's not the gospel. And so you can have a diverse space that is completely not, not working out, not living out the gospel. And in that case, I say, please don't do that. Please don't do that. It's causing greater trauma. You're causing greater harm to people because the, the church is a place where people should be able to be free, where they should be able to heal, where we should be able to grow. And so the challenge then is um, recognizing that you are dealing, and I can't overstate this enough. I am so blessed by my conversation with Pastor, with Pastor Jay. I've told him I'm super excited by the things he's been sharing with me. I cannot express enough how excited I am. And he knows that. He, like, I can't even, I don't even have any more words to say. But I also want to say that this is a, so, such a high calling that the Lord has placed in your spirit. Because we live in a world, in our society, where everything, as, as Robert was saying, is working against it. We live in a society that's highly racialized. We live in a society that's quite discriminatory, even in subtle ways, such that, and if we don't pay attention, we gotta, we gotta pay attention. Our schools are racially segregated generally, even though on the books, they don't, they're not supposed to be. We marry people of the same race. Our friendship groups are racially homogenous. Even the jobs we choose, we go into particular lines of work and those are organized around race. 
So everything outside of the church in this country is going to pull you apart. And that's why I go back to my initial point about saying, ah, oh, but you must stay close to the Holy Spirit. You must be rooted. Because the storm is coming, my friends. Once you begin to choose to walk in that path, you must understand, do not underestimate the storm. So being rooted, being centered in the Lord is extremely critical, extremely critical. I, uh, wow, I really appreciate that. That's um, pretty powerful stuff. Um, let me draw again on the marriage um, illustration or metaphor. Um, more than half of the people in this country who decide to get married wind up getting divorced. Um, I think, last stat I heard, that Christians, it's somewhere over 60% of Christians who choose to get married wind up getting divorced. So, again, as an illustration, kind of just sort of illuminating the point that Corey made, um, there's not a whole lot going on in our society that supports the idea of getting married and staying married till death do us part. Um, but then still people decide to get married. And people are still deciding to get married and choosing to get married. Again, for those of you who've been married um, or who are married, who's been married more than five years? Okay. For those of you who've been married for more than five years, um, five years in, it was pretty easy, wasn't it, to stay married for five years? Anybody? Was that pretty easy to do? Anybody who was just really easy to do <laughs> for, for the first five years, just easy to be married for five years? Okay. How about 10 years in? Okay. Really easy to be married for 10 years. Anybody who was easy to be married for 10 years? Okay. So the point I'm making is that, um, you know, choosing to do this, particularly in the, you know, in this moment in time, in this country, that's, that's very hard to do. And if you don't do it with the right intent, if you don't do it with an understanding of what commitment is, if you don't do it recognizing that, I mean, I believe that I'm a better person because of, my marriage to my wife. I believe that my marriage and my relationship with my wife has made me a better person, has made me a better follower of Christ, have made me a better emissary of the love and gospel uh, and grace of Jesus Christ. So the commitment to remaining married and raising a family and allowing a community to develop around my family, I believe that was an uh, important and valuable thing to do. And so choosing to get married with an understanding of its importance um, and, the, and the possibility of the impact that it has um, on my family and the community around me, that was something I made a commitment to. If you don't understand what marriage really means, because it's not just about you being happy. Um, marriage is not, that's the biggest misnomer, I think, Choosing, you know, I just want to be happy. I, I want to feel good in my relationship. Well, that's not what marriage is about. I mean, I guarantee you that. For those of you contemplating marriage, if you think you're going to be happy all the time or it's going to feel good and it's going to be fun all the time, boy, are you in for a <laughs> rude awakening. But the, but the benefit, the long-term benefit of being married is very important. I think in this country, at this time, given the history and the legacy of segregation, the racism that has, you know, the racialization of our society, choosing to be a multi-ethnic or multi-racial congregation, um, if you do it, you need to do it with the same kind of commitment and understanding of what it means to be married till death do us part, and recognizing that it is one of the, the few solutions to some of this um, challenge that we face taking this issue on. 
we were intentionally segregated. Jim Crow segregation, racism, it, it's what separated us. The thing that we have to do is create spaces where we can begin to develop real relationships so that we can overcome misperceptions, biases, and all those things. I said a lot, kind of babbled a bit there, but I just wanted to, I, I use that marriage metaphor a lot as, a, as an illustration because that's something that most of us can relate to. We talk about these terms in the abstract a lot, and a lot of you don't live in contexts where you even have to deal with people who are different than you. But all of us have families. All of us are either products of marriage or involved in marriage. So the commitment, the importance, the value of marriage is an illustration or metaphor that I think um, could be an archetype for understanding why we need to do multiracial, multiethnic congregation. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, there's so just we just scratched the surface. Um, kind of closing up, would each of you be willing to just share briefly a one thought, um, something to leave, maybe a challenge, a question, uh, something to for us to consider um, kind of moving forward? Pastor Kevin, if we could start with you. Thinking about multi-ethnic, multi-racial uh, congregations and being together, and by the way, uh, Pastor Jay, I agree with Dr. Edwards that um, I commend what God is stirring within you, and I sense that also in the heart of this congregation. Um, I've been chewing on Galatians 5 and really thinking, you know, what, what would that really look like if we took one another seriously and actually loved each other and demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit in all that we do as an alternative to our partisan politics and alternative to our cultural uh, divides? What would it look like for the body of Christ to be so prophetic in how we uh, are related with one another? Uh, that it would truly be a witness to the world. So I commend you in, in that. Uh, I think, um, gosh, a parting thing I would say is I'm so blessed. Um, I'm so blessed by what I hear, uh, what I see, what I sense is happening. Uh, again, through Pastor Jay, others I've spoken with, um, and even come into the service today. Um, I want to encourage you and say that, you know, what you, what, even what I heard today, actually, and it might surprise you because it's you, you only know your own environment, but even how you're approaching it is quite unique for multiracial, for churches that are, for churches, and then for churches that may want to move toward being diverse. And so I want to just encourage you to maintain the gospel at the center, um, what you're already doing. Um, being rooted in that, um, and that's I'm just uh, and I just want to give you that that encouragement. I'll harken back to one of my opening comments: is like how you choose to live. Um, for me, um, intellectual exercises. I mean, we do a lot of that in the West. I mean, the way we even think about education and learning is primarily didactic and kind of stays in our head. We are, so, you know, I think Jay said it early, you've heard these. I mean, there's probably nothing that was said this morning relative to the issue that you may have not heard before. Um, so this, this is obviously not a foreign topic, something, nobody walked in here and never heard of racism or race or some of the challenges that currently are front and center in our society. You've never heard that before. Uh, none of you walked in never heard, hearing that. But the, the, the thing that we tend to do in the West is because we can, you know, sort of interact with it in our head and process it and come away with an opinion, um, it, you know, we think we got it. I mean, you understand this intellectually. But until it's actually lived out in some meaningful way in your life, until your faith is lived out, in some way that has a, a, a tangible impact on the world around you, 
then you, you're, you know, it's like looking in that mirror and then forgetting who you are in James. I mean, you just don't know unless it's lived out. I, who says I have faith in God, but then I don't love my brother, then what good is that faith? Do you really have faith? So my word is you have to decide you're going to figure out how to live this out in some way. You have to, you have to commit to living your life differently as you become informed and transformed by the knowledge and understanding of some of these issues. If you don't do that, then this is meaningless. Believe me, this is meaningless unless you decide that I'm going to live differently as a result of my insight and understanding. Thank you. And toward that end, um, I want to highlight for those of you here who want to go deeper uh, we're having, Robert's going to be leading a poverty and race seminar. Uh, it's going to be starting July, Saturday, July 14th, and then Saturday, July 18th. There's two Saturday mornings for three hours from 9 a.m. to noon. It's a, um, a great opportunity to learn more. There'll be times for questions, dialogue, processing, and I uh, would invite you to consider being a part of that. There's a sign-up in the lobby. And... Uh, Thank you guys so much. It's been an honor to have you as our guest. Thank you for your work, your friendship, your continued prayer. Will you join me in thanking them? And can I wrap up our panel in a quick word of prayer and Mike and the band will make their way up. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for the gift of the church and the the opportunity, uh, the blessing of building relationships across cultures and ethnicities. And may we uh, not, as Corey Edwards said, may we not just go with the flow of the world and culture, which will push us into relationships with people who are just like us. May we, empowered by the gospel, uh, live lives of intentionality because we need, we need the perspective and experiences of people who are other, other than us. Lord, thank you for our friends and the insight they brought. I pray that our church would have the courage to press into these issues uh, in a more permanent way. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.